Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. When seminal documentarian Ed Pincus considered the, fa- the father of first-person nonfiction film is diagnosed with a terminal illness, he and his collaborator Lucia Small team up to make one last film, much to the chagrin of Jane, Ed's wife of 50 years. Told from two filmmakers' point of view, One Cut, One Life challenges the form of first-person documentary. Ed and Lucia's unique approach to filmmaking offers vulnerability and intimacy rarely seen in nonfiction, questioning whether some of the things might be too intimate and private to be made public. We're joined today by the director, co-director of this remarkable documentary called One Cut, One Life. Lucia Small, welcome to Film School. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really honored to be here. Well, it's my honor... Um, again, I, this is one of those films that I can't think of very many films that come close to approaching certainly this level of intimacy, uh, and the uniqueness of it is that it really is a film told from two different points of view. I know there was a lot that went into your decision and Ed's decision to move forward with this film, but tell me a little bit about your process in determining how you came to this project. Yes. um, You know, in many ways, my story is a story of um, both grief and friendship. I, you know, I lost two dear friends um, in late 2009 and 2010, including um, the seminal editor, Karen Schmier, who had worked with Errol Morris. She was a dear friend and roommate of mine. And they were young women, um, even younger than I was, <laughs> and um, they lost their life very suddenly. She was killed by this random fluke, high-speed chase on the Upper West Side, and then a friend, another friend, an artist friend, Susan Wolf, had been killed six weeks before that, um, tragically, in a domestic violence assault, a brutal murder. Um, so, so I was very ambivalent. I think ambivalent is the word that's used a lot in this film, both with my wanting to take tackle it and once Ed was diagnosed with a terminal illness. It, it sort of, when he was diagnosed with MDS and we were helping get his films ready for his archives, we started to hang out a lot. And I just started to film him in, in the color correction studio, thinking, I don't know for posterity, I don't know what this is for, but um, filming often helps me, helps ground me, and so we were, that was, it was sort of a, it sort of evolved, but it was all about trepidation around this topic, and how do you make a film that addresses grief, and sudden grief, and then when you get a warning, what do you do? Mm-hmm. Um so that's how I came to the film, and I, I one of the most important conditions of the film for me was that Ed's wife would be okay with it, because I know how private and intimate this space is of 
someone who is struggling with a terminal illness or a death that is looming. Um, we all know we're going to die, but when you're given a, a warning, it's, it's somehow everything comes into focus more, hmm. so to speak. Yeah. So. yeah, you had worked with Ed Pincus before. Tell us a little bit about that collaboration. Yes. I mean, well, we had made this film, The Axe in the Attic, about the post-Katrina diaspora, and um, Ed had been away from film for 25 years, and we met on a film jury, and and um, he, he, he and I clicked. We watched films similarly. We had similar sensibilities, and then I walked away, and he walked away, and then he emailed me a couple of days later and said, I want to make, I want to come back to film. I want to come back to film and make films with you. And um, that started a three-year conversation about what that would mean and how we would do that. And um, part of that process, too, was um, discussions with Jane, his wife, who really was um, had a, uh, an ambivalent relationship with his work and his making films. And so it was, it was, it was a conversation that started right when we started talking about working together. And I think, you know, one of the things that is said in the film is, you know, it's easy to think that Jane was threatened by me as the other younger woman, but um, that had always been a dialogue in their marriage from the first film Ed ever made, that even when he worked with a male film partner, they always had... Um, you know, a tricky way to figure out how to negotiate that because they were young parents Ed would go off, make a film, and um, be away for a couple months. So that was their conversation that they'd been having for a long time. This was just on the other end of it where mm -hmm. she was older and she didn't expect them to go back to filmmaking. Yeah, he, he had left filmmaking to become, uh, he grew flowers. Right, to got his own yeah. business going, sort of a yes. farmer. Sort of. Yes, and that was, you know, that was sort of a series of reasons why he did that. I mean, it's revealed in the film that he, yeah. you know, he was very seminal, huge influence, had founded the MIT Film Lab, hired Ricky Leacock, you know, had taught many documentary filmmakers, including Ross McAuley, and Terrence Malick, even, um and Neil Bear and Jim Lane and, you know, some local um, people here in Hollywood. Um, and so he left in part because his life was being threatened by um, a co-collaborator, actually, that had become a paranoid schizophrenic. Yeah. And that's, that's addressed briefly in the film. So he went off to Vermont to live in Vermont with his family and sort of go off the grid when you could go off the grid back then. Um, it, this was like the early 80s. And um, and then he found the land. And he was a Brooklyn kid, born in Brooklyn, a street kid who had gambled on the street and grew up um, in the city. And he discovered nature. He used to like to say, you know, George Seafield says, I, it was a woman who drove me to drink and I'm grateful, ever, I've been grateful ever since. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, we're speaking with uh, Lucia Small, co-director of a new documentary uh, called One Cut, One Life. Her and Ed Pincus co-directed uh, this remarkable f film. I'll call it a document. As 
documentary film, but it's it's more than uh, than uh, just that's too simple and too sweeping of a term to use for this. The um, find interesting, and, and yourself, you, your filmmaking, you have again. Let's sort of talk about your career. I mean, you obviously work with Ed Pincus, but you've done other work. Um, is mm-hmm. it always been in the same vein, uh, the sort of first-person filmmaking? I have worked in many capacities. I've even worked on feature sets as an assistant director. So mm-hmm. I'm, you know, I'm a worker. I've always worked for a living. And so I started out as a producer. So a lot of the films that I did were not first-person. But one of the ones that I worked on early as a co-producer was called The Blinking Madonna and Other Miracles. And actually, that was a first-person nonfiction hybrid piece. And I remember saying, as the producer, I said, who in their right mind would ever put themselves in their movies? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, the real interesting challenge, it seems easy, but it's its not. Yeah. However, um, my first piece that I directed was called My Father the Genius, so I was in that yeah. film. Yeah. It was about my dad, and it was an exploration into that that genre trying to sort of smash it up and do different things and experiment with um, animation and music, um, not your traditional direct cinema approach, um, but having some verite mixed with it. So I've always been interested in experimentation and form and hybrids. Um, it's ironic that I sort of went into more classical um, filmmaking once I, once I met Ed, um, but... You know, I got. I have to say, I had, I have never seen Ed interviewed, and very. It just seems like a fascinating uh, individual on many levels. Obviously, uh, he, he. I don't know. Sometimes when you see films in this sort of first person uh, approach, technique, if you will, I'm wondering how much of the is. Is almost therapy. I mean, this film feels very therapeutic on a lot of. I mean, for some obvious reasons, and then some not so obvious reasons. It feels like I don't know. Is this a? Am I? Is this a a, a valid assessment? I, I. I mean, you were dealing obviously, as you said, with sudden death. People close to you. Ed obviously is dealing with his imminent um, in his mortality, but. Then there's the dynamic of the relationship, sort of the triangle of Jane and yourself and Ed. And then there's this other stuff with Ed and sort of the past he's had with filmmaking. There's just, it, it's, I, I can't think of another, I mean, I, I'm struggling to think of something that I could relate to the audience that would, would give them a, a sense of this. And, and I, I don't know that there is, but it really works well. Um, Thank you. Yeah. I mean, therapy. It's interesting you say therapy because, you know, I, I do speak about it that, you know, filming helps frame the pain of the world for me, and it also makes me happy. Um, and But it's also, this form creates need for new therapy. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, there's, there's, there's not, there, there's actually a vulnerability, a place that you have to go to, um, because, you know, as a documentary filmmaker, that's what you're seeking. You're seeking access to any subject. I mean, if you're doing traditional form, I mean, uh, everyone 
most people talk about. It all rests on the story and the access Hmm. to the characters. How intimate can you get with them? How much trust can you gain from them? I mean, some of the best films, you know, have this unique access um, to the world, both in, you know, in public and in private. Um, So... Well, I think that I think that in terms of therapy, I, I always I always um, am very cautious about that term because I feel like it 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 demands um, serious work like therapy does, but it it demands it in a totally public space, yeah. which is a completely not therapeutic place to, to take on this kind these kinds of issues. So right. it's 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 complicated. Well. Well, I mean, in in much of the film, again, between the interaction between uh, Ed's wife, Jane, and yourself and Ed, and then, of course, his own family members and people in your life, uh, and these conversations are obviously kind of, it, it were, the elephant in the room is mortality. The, it is life, life well spent, life uh, getting to to the things that you wanted to get to and, and accomplish. Uh but you know, there's some conversations, and even at some points during uh, your conversations with with Ed Pincus, you you know, you both say, "Well, that hurt," or something like that. And I was just when I was watching, and I I was thinking, didn't in the making of this film, did you have sort of a, a, a an agreement? Did you have a safe word that when you felt like you were beginning to veer into areas that may or may not, you know, be irreparable in terms of the impact they're going to have on your relationship? It, or with Jane's relationship with Ed and you, was there kind of a safe word? Did you have, did you have that sort of safety net when you're making a film like this? Um, well, interesting. I mean, I say the first commitment was Jane's, um, yeah, Jane's approval, which which didn't come easily. It, it was actually uh, became a whole part of the story yeah. because it was it was off, then it was on, then it was. Yes, no, maybe. And she wanted to support Ed in his dying wish to make this film, but she also wanted her privacy. So it was something that she constantly grappled with, and as a result, we did too. I mean, when I'm talking, when I'm filming myself sort of haphazardly two years before, and I say, you know, know, loss is so sacred, and it's so sacred to those who are in the orbit, you know, it's, it's... that is um, that is what I truly felt, and that's what I still truly feel. So yeah. we didn't have a cord or a safe space. I mean, we didn't have that other than, please turn off the camera, mm. right? Mm-hmm. But I don't think we really, he and I really said that to us. Jane said that to us a lot, and actually it feels like some people say, Lucia's incessantly filming. Well, actually, we didn't film that much, and I film Jane not very often. I tried to respect her need for privacy, and um, and it was sometimes when we'd pull out the camera, it was fine, and other times it was not. So it just was a daily or hourly thing yeah. that switched and did different and evolved. Um, because initially I wasn't, she asked me not to come to the doctor's offices, and some of the early footage where he's at the doctor's office, she is filming. Um, yeah. And and it's not apparent, but that's I know that, and so does Ed, and so does she. Um, 
But then she invited me to, to film the doctor's spaces and the hospital spaces. So yeah, I, I, it was an evolving conversation. Yeah, and I, I mean, I wouldn't want you to betray any um, anything that you didn't feel comfortable uh, talking about. But what has Jane's, in general, what has Jane's re- um, reaction been to One Cut, One Life? Well, it's interesting. I mean, we wanted, you know, it was really important that I show a version of the film to Jane when Ed was still alive. Mm-hmm. And I think I raced to the finish line, a lot of people were saying, this is too much, Lucia, you should put it down. But I worked day and night because I felt this very important need to watch it with her, with him, and then have her watch it again and make sure he had seen a close-to-finish cut before he died. Mm-hmm. Now, did we know that was going to be possible? No. we. It was every two months or every month, whether or not he was going to have the bone marrow was still on the table, whether or not, you know, he was going to survive. He went, he went way past their expectations, all the doctor's numbers, like just off the charts. So, um, yeah. So we showed it to her, but then she decided she did not want to see the cut anymore. We showed it to her about six months before he died. And then, I'm sorry, eight months and then six months. And then I tried, you know, I had to finish it after he died, and I stayed up in Vermont, and I I asked her, do you really, do you want to see this now? She said, it's like, no, it's too soon. Yeah, I would think so. So, subsequently, you know, when it's come out in public, she still hasn't wanted to see it, and she's been, like she is in the film, ambivalent about it, understandably. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it tears me apart sometimes when I hear she's suffering about it, but then I think... You know, I think lately she actually has been very happy that it's keeping Ed's egg legacy alive, and she's been more supportive of it in the last couple of weeks. I mean, maybe a month. You know, she's been we we've had phone conversations and we've kept in communication. So, um, okay. Yeah. Well, I I, I I want to remind our listeners. Sorry for no, that long answer. No, no, no. That's great. It's a complicated that's great. answer. No, it is a complicated. It's a complicated question, and I wanted to remind mm-hmm. our listeners that we're speaking with Lucia Small. She's the director, co-director of the film One Cut One Life, co-directed with uh, Ed Pincus, legendary film uh, documentary filmmaker. And uh, well, I guess in this last couple minutes here that I have with you, um, Lucia, what? What have you taken away from this uh, experience as a filmmaker? I mean, a collaboration, obviously, and I think that's important to point out. And you know, Ed definitely had an impact. His imprint is on this film. Uh, it, it there's mm-hmm. it, it feels like uh, his uh, as much as his his project uh, uh, as is under the circumstances uh, it mm-hmm. could be. And um, so, were the things that you learned in filmmaking that you you know, are you going to carry forward? Are you still looking to do documentary films? I mean, tell me a little bit about how you feel coming out of this. Well, it's interesting because I said the last film was my the hardest film I ever made, and and now I can say this is the hardest film I ever made. Um, and I I might be able to say that it will be in my entire life. Yeah. I mean, I think that it is an experiment, and we it's. Uh, as as Ed liked to say, it was a high wire act. 
I firmly believe that his his you know legacy, if you will, was in experimentation, and I've, that's why we met. That's why we gravitated towards each other, and um, I wanted the legacy to live out there in the form itself. And what the gift that I got, because I got many gifts through this, and he did as well, but the gift that I got was, um, one, I start, he start, you know, I start to film more and more in, 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 in the movie and take over more of the role of the cinematographer. So as a, as a person, I finally fell into my role as a cinematographer. You know, I've done editing and I've done directing and I've done producing, but this was when I really felt I became a filmmaker um, in all the ways. Um, the other thing is, is like part of this project he wanted to do is he wanted to, he wanted to give me a gift too. Yeah. Um, and that was a sense of understanding my talent. And, um, you know, he was one of these people that had the most confidence I've ever met in the world. You know, people call him unapologetic and that because that's because he was a philosopher. He believed in pushing boundaries and was not unapologetic. I believe in pushing boundaries because I'm a feminist and I want to examine things, but then I'm also apologetic about it. <laughs> and um you know, and I used to say to him, Ed, if I could have one thing, it would be at the pink, a pinky of your confidence, Ed. And, you know, I think that's what I now have. A pinky of his confidence. And where that will lead me, I don't know. I've always wanted to do some fiction work, but I think I'm going to be, you know, nonfiction is is a real important form. And I, I feel I've found a little footing here. Well, you've found uh, your voice in this film, if and and you this this uh, duet with Ed that you did here with One yeah. Cut, One Life um, is a remarkable film. And just for people who care about this stuff, the reviews have been amazing um, across the board. I mean, everyone who uh, should see this film, you're going to be at the Music Hall uh, for a screening tonight, which is uh, June 12th. Uh, tonight, mm -hmm. are you there over the weekend or just tonight? What tell tell me your schedule is for the okay. tonight. I'm here doing Q and A at the 720 show, okay. and then tomorrow I'll be. You know, families coming from San Diego mm -hmm. and San Francisco, and so I'm going to be around all day tomorrow to Saturday, Saturday the 13th, and then we have this this panel at Emerson L.A. with um, Neil Baer, the executive producer, who was a former student of Ed's, and Jim Lang, also a former student of Ed, who teaches there. And we're going to talk about and show some of Ed's earlier work, and we're going to talk about his form, and many of his students are coming out for that. And, so. Lucia, where is that again? Where is that going to be? That's at Emerson L.A., and that's at 2 p.m., and then we're going to all go over to the 450 show. Okay. Um, so we'll be, I'll be around there tomorrow on Sunday for the 450 show and the 720 show. But the Emerson panel is really it's free. Mm -hmm. People can come, and it's, you know, it's going to be an intimate discussion with some former students and myself. And, and, and actually the critic, Scott Fondas, who um, curated a retrospective of Ed's um, for the Lincoln Center about two years ago, before two years before Ed died. Sorry, and and for people who you know, another way to another 
entry into Ed's uh, work is also the Filmmaker's Guide, which he uh, co-authored with Stephen Asher, uh, yes. which is a sort of the, it's the, I don't know, I don't say the Bible of filmmaking, but it's certainly one of the more uh, uh, respected and well-known um, uh, books on filmmaking ever written. Well, right. I well, like Jane, like Jane wrote one of the Bibles of film of fe- feminism, "Our Bodies Ourselves." Oh my Ed gosh! Ed wrote one of the Bibles of you know filmmaking, the first sort of "you can do it" kind of the guide to filmmaking, and then then that evolved into the filmmaker's handbook with Steve Asher, principally authoring it. So. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, uh, this is the kind of movie that inspires people and inspires them in, just in ways to appreciate their own lives, <clears throat> appreciate the lives of the people around them, and and understand just how quickly things can change. And um, thank you. Yeah. And I tell you, I I feel like uh, when I see, you, I want to give you a big hug. <laughs> <laughs> oh, after watching come the movie. On down. <laughs> come on down. Oh, I'd love, love to. So, well, okay. All right. Okay. Well, <laughs> well again, uh, Lucia Small, the direct co-director of One Cut, One Life, with along with Ed Pincus, um, at the Music Hall 3 tonight in, uh, it said, they say it's L.A., it's really Beverly Hills, it's right there on Wilshire, it's a great spot, really, really cool uh, place, and a lot of independent documentary filmmakers have, have found a home there, and... Um, all the best, and I would love to come up and see you. And if I do, I'll, 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 uh, I'll if I try to bear hug you, I, I promise I won't. But, uh, but anyway, thank you so, uh, okay, so very much, thank Lucia. You. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio.